You're with the Wheeler Centre and this is The Fifth Estate. Today, the second and final part of our short series of conversations with highly influential investigative journalist and author Nick Davies, hosted by private media editor-in-chief Sophie Black. For this one, we travelled to the Museum of Australian Democracy at Eureka in Ballarat. Here's Sophie. Thanks for being here, Nick. It's all right. It's a pleasure, except it's colder than England. (laughs) Very, very sorry about that. Um... From the start, you you had a, an inkling that this was a, a big story. You you were tipped off um, by a certain person, and the the basics of the story were, was that this was a a, a story a crime story um, that wasn't just about one or two individuals being hacked, but but thousands. Okay. But at what point did you realise that this was an even bigger story? Okay, so. Uh as Sophie says, I, I, there's nothing very difficult about being a reporter. People come along and tell you stuff, and you write it out. So I had a really good source from the word go on this story who presented it. I mean, he knew just about the whole truth. And what you could see from the beginning... Is this coming across? I can't hear my voice coming. Okay, cool. What you could see from the beginning was that this wasn't really a story about crime. That's just where it began, with these journalists routinely breaking the law. From the word go, it was obviously a story about power for at least three reasons. One... The original source correctly said, it's not just that these journalists are routinely breaking the law, but Scotland Yard are sitting on detailed evidence that shows the scale on which they're breaking the law and the involvement of the most senior people at the newspaper. And yet the police have chosen not to act on this evidence. Why? At least in significant part, they don't want to get into a fight with a powerful newspaper group. So that's power signal number one. Power signal number two, it's clear and obvious that the guy who was in charge of the newspaper when all that crime was being committed, Andy Coulson, has already gone to work for the conservative leader, David Cameron, and it's pretty predictable that he's about to become our prime minister. So the guy who was running all this crime is about to be at the center of power with the particular job of communicating with the British people. If he's lying already about his involvement in crime, do we really want an established liar responsible for telling the people of the country what the government's doing? So that's power signal number two. And power signal number three, in a single word which will be familiar to you, is Rupert. (laughs) He owns the outfit. And even though at that stage I don't think I'd ever done any specific research, it's pretty clear from the outside that just as the police don't want to get into a fight with his newspaper our government also don't want to get into a fight with him and his four newspapers and his Sky News channel. And that's ultimately, finally, where the story takes you and why it's worth spending, as I have done, six and a half years on it and writing a whole book. Probably the last third of the book is actually about what went on in the corridors of power where the democratically elected government were backing off what they had been elected to do in order to placate this famous former Australian. How do you feel about that, the fact that he sold his nationality? (laughs) Quite unusual. <laughs> Not aggrieved enough, I don't think. Um, so th- there was a brief moment there when you punctured that power. Uh, and I'm talking about July 20, 2011 when Rupert Murdoch, Murdoch sat before the Culture, Media and Sport mm-hmm. Committee on the most humble, humble day of his life, supposedly. How did that feel, knowing that this was the culmination of your work? Um, It was fantastically exciting, actually. There was a sort of two-week period there where all of the sort of normal rules of public life suddenly fell apart. 
Because one, I mean, it, it, it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that one of the most important rules of public life in Britain for years had been everybody in power wants to be on good terms with Rupert Murdoch. His power was really, really considerable. And you could see it in concrete form each summer when he would hold this summer party, as he did do in June 2011 yet again. And kind of holding court, and all these politicians would come along and queue up for the right to speak to the great man, for the right to get a chance to find out what he's thinking, what he wants, so that perhaps we can please him. And, and suddenly, all the bets were off. Everything changed. It, it, there was this extraordinary chain reaction, you know, where we published... This, this was about the hundredth story we'd done over a two-year period about the scandal. But the, the particular story disclosing that the news of the world had got into the voicemail of this 12-year-old girl, Millie Dowler, who'd been abducted and murdered. And that had a, a big emotional impact, not so much on Guardian readers, but on the editors and news editors of rival newspapers, who up to that point, with a few honorable exceptions, had refused to tell their own readers about the scandal. That would be partly because they were themselves owned by Rupert Murdoch, so there you have the Rupert word again, Partly because they might be independent of Rupert Murdoch, but they were themselves committing the same kind of crime. So for that reason, they didn't want the story out. But the Millie Dowler story had enough emotional punch that they had to report it. And once that started to happen, the chain reaction was very powerful. So you have the Daily Telegraph, no, no relation to the, the one in Australia, but a very, it, it supports the Conservative Party. They backed off the story because they didn't like, they didn't want to embarrass David Cameron with the Coulson factor. Are you with me? But once we did the Millie Dowler story, they joined the coverage, and they disclosed a couple of amazing things. The, the first being that the news of the world had hacked the voicemail messages of the families of those who'd been killed in terrorist bombs in London in the tube trains in July 2005, which is really, really a shocking thing to do. I would, I would say the emotional impact of that is at least level with the Millie Dowler story, possibly worse. And then the next day, the Telegraph disclosed that the families of British soldiers who'd been killed in Afghanistan and Iraq also had had their voicemail listened to. And I think the cumulative effect of that chain reaction, finally being distributed to all these readers, just changed everything. And, the, and everybody came, oh, come on, that's just too much. It's too much. And so all those politicians who had been so anxious to please Rupert suddenly said, actually, I never really liked the man. And all, all changing sides. And so that, that was what was so amazing. It was that wider context of rebellion that, that suddenly the great man had lost his power. But that was only the case for a couple of weeks. Very slowly, I think, the power So, back. So that one brief shining moment in that room, yep. was it just overwhelming schadenfreude? Was, it, was, it, was there a feeling of relish or anger? No, I, so I think... So I was sitting right in the middle of the room watching them. I think... Part of it actually was a feeling of slight frustration that the, the, the members of parliament who were questioning Rupert Murdoch and James Murdoch were doing a good job. They, they, they got rid of their fear and they were challenging them. And they, they were putting pressure on them. But the two Murdochs had clearly spent some days rehearsing all this with expert advice from their lawyers and the PR companies. So this is the humblest day of my life. It's not a spontaneous thought. I am sure that has been set up by the PR company. That's the line. That's the headline we want. Apologize. Back down. But it, it was frustrating because they, the MPs are not professional inquisitors. I think if, they, if you'd had professional barristers in there, mm. they would have pushed them further and got more out of them. So it was kind of a stalemate. 
And then do you remember there was this idiot in the audience who approached Rupert Murdoch with a plate full of shaving cream or something and put it in his face. And A, that broke all of the pressure that the MPs were building up on the two Murdochs. And B, rightly, in a sense, it tipped all the sympathy in Rupert Murdoch's direction. Why should an 80-year-old man have a plate full of shaving cream shoved in his face? It was frightening and unfair for him. So because of the idiot, the stalemate got broken in Rupert's direction, I felt. And so it was kind of frustrating watching it because you, we didn't really get anything new and special out of the hearing. Symbolically amazing, mm. but in terms of information, not, not as productive as one wanted. And he was very much playing the doddery 80-year-old man in that setting, wasn't Yes, I he? think that a lot of people debated this afterwards. You know that when he was asked quite tricky questions, he, he would just sort of go into this daze and drum his fingers on the <laughs> time. There's a point when he was asked... What did you used to say to Tony Blair when you had private meetings? And it was almost like, Blair? I know the name. <laughs> <laughs> but, and at the time, there was a sort of debate. Is he really losing his marbles? Do you use that expression in Australia? Mm -hmm. Is he actually losing yeah. his wits? Or was that a tactic? And I think as time has gone by, it's pretty clear it was a tactic. Because I've talked to people who work quite closely with him. And they say he's actually a nightmare because he's so difficult to discipline. And that on occasions when he's making speeches or being interviewed by the media or something like that, he has a tendency to wander off script and say embarrassing things. He does it on Twitter all the time because he hasn't got an editor, of course, being the proprietor. And I suspect that they said, listen, if you get stuck with a question and you feel even slightly tempted to say something controversial, amnesia, get it? Just blow out, forget. And he, he was drum very the good fingers at it. on the table. Very, and very good at so it. I think it was tactical. So let's go back five or six years. Tell us how you originally came to this story. Well, that was just because I, I was on the radio talking about journalism and I started talking about the fact that I knew that newspapers were using private investigators to commit some crimes. And there was a guy on the radio with me who was the managing editor of the News of the World, rather a threatening, dark kind of guy called Stuart Cutner. And he attacked me verbally with such force he made, it was a mistake for him to do this because he just kind of said, you're completely wrong. You, you're living on another planet. And there was somebody listening to the radio, a guy I'd never heard of, who was provoked by that and got in touch with me. And um, it was actually, says, there was a slight significance in the way that he got in touch because he got in touch and he said, I heard you and Stuart Cutler on the radio. There's some stuff you need to know. Um, come and see me. And um, this is my mobile phone number, but don't ever leave a message for me. You can understand what he was thinking, which I didn't necessarily appreciate mm. at the time. But he's the guy who became the source, who just told me the whole story and was my guide on the way through. Did and I so, question? Yeah, no, no, you did. And so that, and, and that from the very start, he outlined the, the scale of the, 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 the crime. That, that and, and as I was saying, the implications about power. Tell us a little bit about that, that just the, the tools of the trade, the, the dark arts. So the phone hacking, who, who, are, how, who are the people doing this hacking and how does their relationship work with the journalists on Fleet Street? So this is, this is generally speaking about journalists hiring private investigators. There are actually two reasons for hiring a private investigator. One is he or she will have specialist skills, but the other is they can act as a fool guy so that if the thing goes wrong, it's the investigator who ends up in court, and the journalist says, whoa, I didn't understand he was doing that to get the information. It's kind of evil. And so the, the sort of basic crime that was most frequently committed is what we call blagging. You know, that's just a kind of slang word for tricking someone. 
So you have investigators who specialize in contacting organizations which are holding confidential data about you. So it might be the tax man or your bank or credit card company. And they will pose usually as a member of staff from that organization and trick other people within the organization into disclosing your private stuff. There was one of them who was a former actor who they used to call the funny, funny voices man. So he would imitate celebrities and might get on, for example, to Gordon Brown's accountant posing as Gordon Brown and get stuff disclosed over the phone. Or John Cleese, I know he did. Uh, so, so that's blagging, extracting confidential data from organizations which are, which are trying to hold it privately. And that's a criminal offense. Well, then you get into voicemail hacking and email hacking and some live phone call tapping, which is a more serious offense, a little bit of burglary on the side. Some of the private investigators who are doing this are quite weird. There's an extraordinary man called Phil Winton, who is a, a, a live phone call tapper. But what's odd about Phil Winton is that he's obsessed with cats. So he changed his name to Phil Cat. His uh, car number plate is Cat. He has cats wandering around his office and peeing in the office, so it's an unpleasant place to be. He was keeping these large cats in his back garden, which were kind of semi-wild and driving the neighbors crazy. But you just wouldn't invent him. You know, if you were writing a novel about it, you wouldn't invent Phil Cat. It would put the readers off. Or there was this other extraordinary network of blaggers and they were very, very effective, these blaggers, at ringing people up and conning them into disclosing confidential information. And after a while, I discovered that all of them, they worked together. All of them had in common one thing, that they were all former heroin addicts. And they had met through Narcotics Anonymous. There was, it was a real fluke. There was a guy in one part of London using heroin, became a blagger. Completely different part of London, guy using heroin becomes a blagger. They met at an NA meeting and said, whoa, we were made for each other set up this organization, and then through NA meetings would recruit other people. And they were actually helping them to recover. But the, one of them said to me, the thing is that we were just brilliant at lying. If you're, he, he told me this thing, right, to demonstrate what brilliant liars they were. I, I want to say, I have close friends who are heroin addicts. This is not anti-heroin addict at all. But he said, that, he said, what's the difference between a heroin addict and an alcoholic? He said, well, both of them will steal your wallet, but the heroin addict will help you look for it. <laughs> so he, he was just trying to demonstrate their, their deep-seated ability. He said, I lie to myself. Of course I can lie to the bank or whoever it is. And then some of the PIs, these private investigators, are really quite unpleasant. In the book I talk about this. There was a private investigator called Daniel Morgan. Years ago, in March 87, he was found dead in the car park of a pub in South London with an axe in his face. Uh, the police inquiry into his murder was riddled with improper behavior and allegations of corruption, and they never have caught the person who was responsible. But what was striking was that the, one of the senior officers who was involved in that useless inquiry into Daniel Morgan's murder left the police and became a new partner in the private investigation business. And over time, certainly it's true to say that the police have suspected that the dead man's partner and the cop colluded together to kill Daniel Morgan. But, but that's never been proved, so if you're tweeting it, just be very, very cautious about how you put it. But certainly somebody in very close to that investigations agency has been involved in the most serious kinds of police corruption. I mean, dealing with detectives who are gangsters, who happen to have warrant cards, 
and who are suspected rightly or wrongly of being implicated in murder. So there you're talking about some really, really nasty people. I mean, even if the murder allegation is completely false, there is no doubt at all they've been involved with, with, with gangsters with police warrant crimes. And they were working for the news of the world. How do these people mm. become mm. entwined with Fleet Street? And is, it ju- is this unique to News International mastheads? Or? No, so as I said, the, the other newspapers were failing to report the story. Yeah because they too were involved in similar crimes. Not every single newspaper in Fleet Street, but um, there's the, the Mirror Group, the Daily Mirror, Sunday Mirror, Sunday People, they, they've certainly been heavily implicated in the voicemail hacking. I mean, even some of the posh papers, like the Telegraph, the Daily Telegraph, very posh, and the Times, I've caught out doing, hiring blaggers to break the law to get When did this become a way of doing journalism? Why, when did this become an acceptable, well, if, if not overt practice? I, well, it's sort of, it's crept up slowly. So the blagging starts kind of late 80s. Um, a lot of people blame Margaret Thatcher. It's very easy to blame Margaret Thatcher for all sorts <laughs> of things. But what it is, is, I, I don't know whether this is, but for, for a long time, there was a little industry in Britain of what they call tracers, which is simply somebody disappears owing money. It might be to the bank or it might be to the ex-wife in alimony. And the person who's owed the money goes to a private investigator and says, can you find this missing guy? And those people were known as tracers. Their main skill was in exploiting public records to try and find your new address. But those tracers started to develop the skills of blagging. So maybe you've gone missing and you don't want to pay your ex-wife alimony. But you carry on signing on for unemployment benefit. So the tracer calls the Department of Social Security and blags the new address where you're living, claiming your benefit. You got me? So the tracers start doing blagging. Where Mrs. Thatcher comes in, is that during the, the 1980s, she engineered an enormous credit boom. Suddenly, everybody's borrowing masses of money to buy houses. House prices are rocketing. Let's borrow more. And they're borrowing money for electronic goods and electrical goods. And so and a, the, the number of people who are disappearing without paying the money they've borrowed soars. So the tracing industry soars. So you've got people being sucked in, more and more blaggers. That's when the heroin users all got involved. And so you've suddenly got a relatively new and large industry of blaggers. And in one way or another, accidentally or just through flukes, it, the Fleet Street becomes aware of it. Mm. And then, e- even though it's got much more worse recently, it's always been the case that newspapers have tried to do their business by cutting corners mm. and, and saving their budget. And it's a wonderful corner cutter, isn't it? If you, if you, okay, it's criminal, we might end up in prison, but it makes it easier and quicker to do the job. And then the voicemail hacking comes in about 10 years later, late 90s, just because mobile phones are everywhere. There's this pathetic hole in the security. You know where, if, if, if you leave your phone at home, but you want to know the messages on it, you dial your own phone number, and it'll say put in a four-digit PIN code. And most people are kind of unaware of that, and therefore haven't changed the PIN code from the factory setting, which is going to be something like double four double four. So if you can do that for your phone, I can do it to your phone. I call your number. As long as you don't answer it, I put in double four double four, and I hear all the messages that have been left for you. But it's so easy. So the, it, I think there it was just a question of, irresistible temptation and they woof out of control so the initial the initial uh, victims of hacking that that started off this this wave of of will started off your investigation were a few palace officials and another handful of people beyond that so clive goodman gets arrested the royal correspondent at mm-hmm. the news of the world and glenn mulcair his private investigator mm-hmm. The stories that they were outed over were fairly... They weren't exactly explosive, were they? What they, they were no, about... they were silly little stories. I mean, you can see how 
using criminal techniques had just become routine. So Clive Goodman, the royal editor of the News of the World, he's the guy who's originally arrested back in 2006. And the stories that he'd been risking his liberty for were things like the fact that Prince William had hurt his knee when he was doing something kind of manly and royal one day. And it's going to make two paragraphs in the paper. It's nothing. But it was just routine. And in fact, they got Clive Goodman's telephone records and you could see that he was obsessively all day long and sometimes like at three o'clock in the morning when Prince William's asleep or the royal staff are asleep. He's, he's awake. Let's see what's on the any voicemail. There was this really rather sad line about Clive Goodman. I think he had been when he was younger, quite an effective reporter. He'd always tended to specialize in royalty and celebrity gossip. But he'd got older, some of his contacts had died, he'd lost his energy. And in the office they had this unkind thing that they said he was like the eternal flame because he never went out. He just sat at his desk. Sad, lonely man. Uh, So I think that's why he was doing it. I think he was desperately worried about losing his job. And this was his way of replacing the contacts he'd lost, was to cheat obsessively. So that's, that's all the public knew at that point. They knew Clive and... Yes, and that's where you start to... Sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. But they, 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 knew, they knew about that and that's all they knew. And then now you enter and you know that there is the existence of thousands and thousands of yep. these hacks. Yep. It then, the circle then widens to celebra- celebrities, is that safe to say? That, that was the um, next sort of circle of victims that you okay, were Okay, so if you look at the bigger picture, it's, it, there's an interesting thing about Princess Diana that a newspaper like the News of the World has always wanted to investigate and dig out stories, and they would include stories that could be embarrassing about people's personal lives. If you go back to the sort of 60s and 70s, they tended to target criminals. They would, they would do quite serious things, like exposing illegal arms dealers. Fascists, they were very good at exposing the National Front, our extreme sort of neo-Nazi party. Then they start to drift, and... They start to get into other public figures, politicians in bed with prostitutes, uh, maybe some famous actors, and then Princess Diana. She comes along, and she is, from the tabloid newspaper's point of view, the biggest human interest story in the world, the magical princess marrying the prince. And they are so desperate to get stuff about her that they break through the wall of deference and privacy which rightly or wrongly previously had meant that the royal family were off limits. And they break through and nobody stops them. I mean, so the press council doesn't say, hang on, she's got a private life, you've got to back off. They run riot all over her private life. And the the point then is that once they've got away with that, then everybody's private life is up for grabs and they'll go for anybody, just ordinary civilians, Millie Dowler, whoever it is, I mean, particularly around sex. Just, but if there's something at all salacious in anybody's private life, mm-hmm. they're going to hoik it out. The diner is the breakthrough moment. And so by the time Clive Goodman is arrested in 2006, they've been, for example, hacking into the voicemail of literally thousands of people from every walk of life, whether famous or simply ordinary people. And what's upsetting is that the police discover Clive Goodman is doing this to the royal family. They nick him. They look at the phone records and they can see this second bunch of phone numbers are being used. That's the private investigator, Glenn Malcare, who helps him. So they go and bust Glenn Malcare. And when they raid him, they go into his house and they seize all of his notebooks and his computer records. And that gives them the identity of 5,500 people who that man had hacked, right, up to that point. And it gives them identity, the identity of the senior journalists who've been instructing him to do it. Because because Glenn Malcare, the investigator, had what turned out to be the very destructive habit that whenever anybody phoned him up and said, oh, Glenn, can you target Sophie Black? He would write that journalist's name in the top left-hand corner of his notes. 
So it was absolutely telltale evidence. And some of it said Clive. It's Clive Goodman. But there was, there was Ian, Ian Edmondson. There was Neville, Neville Thurbeck. All there. It's all in police hands. 5,500 victims. All those senior journalists. And they went, whoa, put that away. Let's just nick Clive. Mention three royal victims. Okay, we'll put Malcare in the dock with him. We'll throw in five other victims as kind of samples. And we won't say they're samples. We won't say there are 5,500. We'll tell the world there was a grand total of eight victims, one rogue reporter, and we can all go home and Rupert won't be angry with us. What would have motivated them to do that? An assumption that Rupert would be angry, and then what? to To be fair to those particular officers... Because it was the royal family who first surfaced as victims, the cops who got involved were the counter-terrorism people who were responsible for keeping them safe. And I think that they did have a legitimate point. Once we've sorted out the royal family, then we've got much, much more important things to do, like saving people's lives and stopping terrorists conspiring to, mm. to kill hundreds. But what they certainly should have done was to pass all that evidence to another police unit who weren't so busy with really, really serious crime, and they should have gone into it. But as it was, I mean, some of the failure to follow it up was really quite striking. So, I mean, even if we're, we're going to be generous to those counterterrorism officers, who I think were straight, they're not responsible only for protecting the royal family. They're responsible also for protecting government ministers. And in the paperwork which they had, they could see that our then deputy prime minister, John Prescott, had had his communications targeted by this guy. And John Prescott, as Deputy Prime Minister, has access to the most sensitive military, financial, economic, diplomatic secrets that exist. It really mattered. You have to go and tell him, you need to change everything about your communication security. You need to know that on these dates, your private, your secret information was disclosed. They never went near him. So it w- there was a shocking failure there. Even if there's the beginning of a legitimate excuse, it, w- it was a shocking failure. And I, I feel kind of that we should give them the benefit of the doubt, those specialists. But from that moment on, and particularly once we started reporting it, the police behaved really, really badly. And then I am sure you're looking at an organization that's frightened of a powerful media mogul. Because from the outset, we said there are thousands of victims, there are other people at the newspaper involved. And this very senior police officer and assistant commissioner spent two years consistently misleading other newspapers, the public, and parliament about it. And he even came in to see my editor and told the editor that I was getting it wrong and that it was all very embarrassing for the paper. His boss, the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, also came in for tea and biscuits, which my editor gives away generously, and told him, you know, Nick Davis has got all this wrong, it's all going to come unstuck. But that's bad behavior. You remember what they're sitting on, and they're coming in and doing that. And in the end, in that two weeks of madness when all the rules were changed, I, don't, I, I think maybe it's a bit selfish to say I was satisfied by this, but there was a kind of justice in that both that assistant commissioner and the commissioner both resigned and had to go. But the, but the main point is I cannot think of any explanation for what they were doing that doesn't include fear of Rupert Murdoch and his newspapers. And then in addition to that, there was, also, there was that breathtaking kind of moment when Rebecca Brooks blithely said, oh, yes, we pay police for information. We have done that in the past. And and Andy Coulson tried to clean up after her. She was giving evidence to a select committee in Parliament. But I I think it is part of the picture here that they'd got so used to breaking the law. Mm. Paying bribes to public officials is also, I think I forgot to mention it, is a key part of this. Where the law is quite confused, but there is no question that the, the officials who were receiving the money were breaking the law and accepting bribes from these newspapers. I think that that it had just become standard practice and they just lost track of the fact, Mm. some of them, that they were breaking the law. And that was a a very strange moment from Rebecca Brooks, who's a very, very clever woman, 
that, that I think she just lost track of the significance of what she was admitting to say that in front of a parliamentary select committee. There was also a certain degree of arrogance from News International and, and it took a, a long time for them to sweat over your coverage. Mm-hmm. They, what, what tactics did they initially employ to try and cover this story up from their end? So, first of all, they throw money at it because, you know, in the original trial, you've got the three royal victims I mentioned and five other non-royal victims who the police threw in. One of those, a man called Gordon Taylor, who ran the Professional Footballers Association, like their trade union, he, he realized that he, he had been told by the police in the original inquiry, your voicemail was hacked. He had a lethally clever lawyer who decided to sue the Murdoch company in the UK on his behalf for breach of privacy. And that led to some rather alarming things for the Murdoch company because the judge in that case said to the police, you have to disclose any evidence you've got that relates to this man, Gordon Taylor. So this was handed over. So up until that point, the Murdoch company, which was called News International, had been saying, it never happened. We never went there. We don't know what you're talking about. Suddenly, there's the paperwork which proves that their journalists were involved with that private investigator hacking this man, Gordon Taylor. So then they throw money at it. They ended up spending about a million pounds paying huge amounts of damages to Gordon Taylor and his legal fees and then similar damages to two other people who'd been hacked as part of the operation against him. And that's hush money. That's, we've got so much money in the bank, we can shut this thing down and nobody will know about it. So A, they throw money at it. That's what we, the first story we did was uncovering all that. Well, then they just resort to dishonesty. So we, we run stories saying there were thousands of victims, lots of people at the News of the World involved. And they put out this big statement accusing us of deliberately misleading the British people. And, of course, they own newspapers who haven't reported the original story, but do report that The Guardian has fouled up this useless liberal newspaper. And that's quite an unnerving experience, actually, because everybody is being told, you know, not just that your story's wrong, but that you're kind of useless at the job you do. And um, there was a moment around that time when I hailed a taxi in London and the driver was chatty, or what do you do for a living? Oh, yeah, what sort of stories do you do? Oh, well, I've just been doing this phone hacking stuff. Oh, yeah, he said, that all turned out to be wrong, didn't it? And the messages got through. So what with the money to buy people's silence and the lying, it was a very difficult time. But am I allowed to carry on talking? I know yeah, I'm rambling a bit. No, you are, you are. It was part of the formula here that caused trouble for them, that over the years they'd become used to having their way, used to their aggression paying off. And on this occasion, it was working against them. So if you go back to the moment when I was talking on the radio about crime in newspapers, the managing editor of the News of the World, Stuart Cutner, attacks me. That's what provokes the source into coming forward. So that's how I get into the story in the first place. Having done that first big story, left to my own devices, I would have followed it up for a week or two. Good story, worth following up, and then gone off to the next exciting adventure. But because they came out with the statement accusing us of deliberately misleading the British people, I couldn't leave the story because I had to try to defend the credibility of the paper and maybe myself. And then a few months passed and we did some more stories. We kind of restored things a bit. And um, I think it's all right to tell you this. I kind of fell in love with a really nice woman who lives in Amsterdam. So I went to my editor, who's a really nice man, and I said, you know what? We are not covering Brussels properly. There's um, (laughs) huge numbers of stories just sitting there like low-hanging fruit. So why don't I go and be based in Brussels, brackets only 60 minutes away on a fast train from Amsterdam, do all the great Brussels stories, see the lovely woman at the weekend. So he said, yeah, that's fine. So I was ready to go and fall in love and change my life when 
our press regulator, the Press Complaints Commission, which was funded and run by Murdoch's people, put out a report saying, Guardian stories all gibberish, news of the world, jolly good newspaper, haven't done anything wrong. So once again, they've attacked us. This is now the third time in the sequence. So I never made it to Brussels. The relationship went nowhere. You'll be very sorry to hear. I'd stay and keep working on it. So do you see, it's their own aggression driving us further and further into uncovering the story. You also had to get creative at times to get past their roadblocks, um, and you've formed some unlikely collaborations with people. I mean, Tom Watson, the Labour MP, you, you yeah. were, not that that's unlikely, but you were texting him during um, Murdoch's, yeah. Murdoch's um, session, kind of suggesting questions. You, you, were, uh, you liaised with a lot of lawyers to try and get information yeah. out through the courts. I mean, it should be said... Uh, in the book, I've described the kind of things that I was doing to extract information to get the story published. <clears throat> and there are certainly some journalists who, who would say, well, you're wrong to do this. This is not okay. Um, so there were several things which, which we did were, which were unusual, mm. which other journalists wouldn't do. The first actually was that we were, we were absolutely isolated, politically isolated, primarily because the other newspapers wouldn't report the story. And it felt nerve-wracking, and it felt like we were in danger of being remembered and thought of as idiots who couldn't get the story right. So my editor, Alan, reversed the normal logic of a way a newspaper operates. Normally you say, this is our exclusive story, we'll hoard it. If anybody else wants to follow it up, they'll have to quote us. So he contacted the editor of the New York Times and said, we've got a great story here, tabloid journalists, members of the royal family, private investigators. And, and Alan's thinking clever here, Alan, my editor, because A, the New York Times is outside of the UK. They're not going to be too frightened of British politics and Murdoch power. B, in New York, Murdoch has just bought the Wall Street Journal and is aiming it as a kind of weapon of media destruction at the New York Times. So they have a, some kind of interest in seeing whether Rupert's up to no good on, in another country. So they sent three reporters over, and I ended up briefing them, hours and hours and hours. Here, have some more information. Complete reverse of the Did normal that hurt budget. as a journalist? It felt weird, mm. but, but I, I understood why we were doing it. And in fact, it, it, I mean, it was slightly nervous, because for all I knew, these three reporters were going to go off and dig and dig and dig and come back and say, actually, The Guardian have got this wrong. Because, you know, you can be 99% certain, but it's very rare to be 100%. As it was, they came back and they confirmed what we'd done and took the story forward in, in one or two really significant and helpful ways. So that was unusual. A second thing that was unusual was that I just began to feel I didn't have enough power to extract the information which we needed. So from the original source, and, and, I've, and we've now got lots of people from the News of the World talking off the record, I'm very, very clear about what the truth is. But because we're up against this aggressive dishonesty, knowing the truth is not enough. You've got to be able to prove every damn word in order to push them back off the lies. And I couldn't prove it, even though I knew it. So, okay, I think this is what I will do. By talking to people who've worked at the News of the World, I can identify particular individuals who they tell me were certainly hacked. Then I can go to those individuals and say, I know for sure that you're a victim. And then I can try to persuade those victims to get in touch with the small handful of lawyers who were already suing on behalf of people who were victims. Okay, so if you all talk to the lawyer, the lawyer will sue. And if you all sue and go to court, with any luck, the judge will do what he did in that case of Gordon Taylor, the very first victim who sued. He will order the police to disclose the evidence that they're sitting on, including all those crucial notes that they seized from Glenn Malcare. You with me, the logic here. Now, what, what is conceivably regarded as wrong about that is I'm intervening in the events which I'm reporting. 
because there's several people here who are suing who wouldn't be suing if I hadn't contacted them and hooked them up. So some journalists would say, don't do that. I say, I'm absolutely happy to do it and write about it in the book because I don't have the power to, to extract the evidence I need, whereas the judge does. So what I'm doing is, is to steer the thing into the judge's, onto the judge's desk so he will use his power. And um, the other thing that I found very reassuring about it, just personally, to make sure I wasn't behaving like a bad guy, was I actually, that's a second-hand idea. I borrowed it from somebody else. So do, do you know Sir Harry Evans, who edited the Sunday Times in London at the time when it was arguably the best newspaper in the world? He's, he's the kind of, he's, for British journalists, the great hero figure since the war. And he wrote a wonderful memoir, which is thrilling for journalists to read because it's all stories behind great stories they did. And he did something very similar there where there was an aeroplane took off from Orly Airport in Paris, climbed to about 3,000 feet and started to break up, crashed to the ground, killed everybody on board. And when that happened, Harry sent reporters to Paris. Why the hell did that happen? And they came back with a shocking allegation, which was that the manufacturers of the plane knew that this new model of plane which they developed had a structural fault such that it was always likely to do that. It wouldn't do it every time, but there was always a clear risk that it would break up on takeoff. And they had made a terrible judgment, which was to say, if we call this plane back and rebuild it, it'll cost us X million. If we let it fly and it crashes on the statistically likely number of occasions and we pay compensation, that's less than X million. So let's let it go. So Harry says to these journalists, we cannot publish that story unless we can prove every word of it. So here's what you guys are going to do. Go and talk to the families of the people who died. A, persuade them to sue. And B, don't let them sue in France, where the accident has happened. Get them to sue in New York, because it's an American company who've manufactured the plane. And it'll be the courts in New York who are likely to order the manufacturers to disclose the paperwork. And so they did that. And lo and behold, the paperwork proved they were right. Real shocker. But so I thought to myself, if that tactic to intervene, to get the thing into court, to get the judge's power on your side. If it's good enough for Harry, it's good enough for me. But, but that's why you're raising it, isn't it? Because it, it, it's, it's controversial. It's very, and you hadn't done that before with any other investigation that you'd worked on? I, I had done it once before, actually. D different thing where I was reading the paper one Saturday morning and there was a story about a woman who'd been locked up for four years because she had, interestingly enough, dressed as a man and tried to rob some building societies. And there was just enough of this story to show that the reason she'd been doing that was because her husband had become ill and lost his job, and her family couldn't survive. And I thought, what, what sort of fat-ass judge does that to a woman who's clearly at the end of her tether? She's not a criminal. I thought it was terribly symbolic that she tried to pretend a man. If I'm going to commit a crime, I'd better pretend to be a man. Women don't do this. But it, I just felt sorry for her. This can't be right, that she's got such a long sentence. She needs help. So I called the court and got the name of her lawyer, and her lawyer was completely cynical and indifferent and couldn't care less. It was a duty lawyer who'd got paid two and sixpence for doing the minimum amount of work. So I thought, this is really wrong. So I contacted another lawyer who was a, who was a kind of human rights tough guy, criminal lawyer called Brian Raymond. And I said, look, if I can contact this woman's husband and persuade her to sack the lawyer, would you take the case on and appeal to try and get her sentence reduced? So he said, fair enough, sounds interesting. So I can't remember how I managed to get hold of the husband, who had been very ill. He'd had some sort of stroke, and his side of his face had dropped. And he was distraught, the wife in hospital, the two young girls left without a mother for four years. 
So he said, okay, let's try it. So I hooked him up with Brian Raymond. Brian Raymond became the lawyer. Um, I said to Brian, in order to lodge the appeal and, and so that I can write something that might help her, can you get her to write everything that happened? And she wrote this pages and pages and pages, amazing story of a, a family sinking into poverty. And her, she had three different jobs at one point. She was up at night cleaning railway carriages and two other jobs during the day. Still, she couldn't make ends meet. There was one point when she decided she might go and work as a prostitute and actually got as far as the background of King's Cross Station in London and then understandably couldn't bring herself to do it. And then she'd done this crazy thing, disguising herself as a man with a toilet roll in her pocket, going into these building societies. So I'm intervening in events, right? She's only appealing because I've got her a different lawyer. There's Brian. He's lodging the appeal. And it came to court... And on the day before the court, I ran a big story in the paper. I'm influencing events again. I want the judges. Judges always pretend they don't read newspapers. They do. You can give them a nudge. Mm. So we did a big story about this poor woman. Where's the justice in this? And <clears throat> during the morning, Brian had a good barrister doing the case. And um, the judges were obviously listening. And it got to the lunch hour. And the judges, this woman, Sue, she wasn't in court. She was in Holloway Prison. So they said, during the lunch hour, we want her brought into the Court of Appeal. So she turned up in the little dock at the side, shivering with fear. And the judges said, well, we've listened to what your lawyers have said. Uh, Mrs. Jones, if we were minded to release you, would you accept a probation order? And she said, yes. And they let her go. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> but it was, it, it actually, it's making me choke up. But it really was quite an yeah. emotional thing because it was so unjust that she was there. But, it, but so, <clears throat> now I'm getting my voice back and my composure. Uh, but it's the same thing, that in order to get the information, to get the story out, you are intervening in events. But I, I just, I don't feel bad about it. I just think it's okay. And she deserves a decent lawyer. I mean, there's another deeper thing to that as well. There's a theory of journalism, which is that we should be sort of robots. We're supposed to be neutral people who never make judgments about what's right or wrong. We're not supposed to get emotionally involved with sources. I think all of this is absolute bullshit mm. and that we're human beings. And if we, like, if we, ha we, ha we have this strange power, journalists, which some people deeply resent, which is that we decide what the news is. It's up to us to decide what story to cover and which of the thousands of stories we won't cover. And you could, the, the sad thing that's going on at the moment is that because newspapers have had their business model busted by the internet. What's taking over more and more is just the logic of commercialism. So you, you choose to cover the story which is cheap to cover. Maybe it's a press release that you're rewriting. And if possible, it's going to be something that's going to bump up your, your viewers or, or readers. And really what you want to be able to do if you've got the resources in your office is to make something much more like a moral judgment and say, well, this is the story that needs to be covered. That, because it's important and because it gets something out into the public domain. I mean, also, you don't want to bore your readers to death, but I, I, I think it's fine, what I'm trying to say, for, for reporters to be human beings who have moral values and views about the world and who can make a decision about what's worth reporting that isn't just a commercial one. And similarly, I, I think it's crazy to say we shouldn't get emotionally involved with our sources. I mean, you can see how emotionally involved I got with the woman who got out of prison. Or... Some of the most interesting and important skills in reporting, I don't know whether there are reporters in the room, but they're to do with building relationships with everybody. So you have to be able to build a relationship with a paedophile and with the policeman who will catch the paedophile and with the adult who was formerly sexually assaulted by the paedophile. You have to have relationships with all these people. Why else would they cooperate? Why would the paedophile tell you what's going on in his head and what's going on in his life? unless you've built a relationship with him. That's, that's the, an amazing sort of skill 
and the, the risk of being pompous, a kind of privilege in reporting. You get to talk to everybody. I've just been in South Africa writing a story about a strike at a mine. Do you know this? A couple of years ago, the police turned up and opened fire. It's a very traumatic event because it looks like it's something from the apartheid era, but this is black officers firing on black miners. And I, 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 this hasn't appeared in The Guardian yet, but I, there was one particular miner whose kind of life I followed. And I was going into these metal shacks where the miners live in the shadow of this huge smelter. And this is a mine that produces platinum, highly valuable, precious metal, that's making hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And these guys live in these metal shacks with no water, no electricity, no sewer. And, but I'm just trying to say it's incredible, this job, that you're allowed to go in there and that these people talk, and they turn out to be so much more interesting. And there was one guy who, he, he was really living in poor conditions. He had a shitty little white plastic table next to his bed and an upside-down metal cup with a candle on it and a very, very well-worn Bible. And I'm not in the slightest bit religious, but this guy glowed with some sort of benign spirit. He was just one of the most admirable people I've ever come across. And you wouldn't expect, you see, if you'd said to me, who are you going to meet when you go into these shacks? I would mm -hmm. never have thought I'd come across this extraordinary man. And I ended up going back to a, a village out in the, what they call the Eastern Cape, about 600 miles from Johannesburg, where the miner I was most interested in had been born and grown up. And there I was in this African hut, you know, with a mud floor, and it's built out of baked mud and dung, a thatched roof, talking to these villagers through a translator. And again, you have this feeling, God, this is a good job. This is just so amazing to be here. So I'm saying, why, why would you be robotic? Of course you're going to build bonds with these people. So it is That's impossible to be neutral as a journalist. I, I wouldn't want to be neutral. Let's make judgments about what needs to be reported. The key word is honest. You have to be honest. Honest means you're trying to tell the truth. And we will all foul up sometimes. Everybody, every human, including every reporter, will make honest mistakes. That's fine. But if you keep that to the fore, everything else will fall into place. So neutral, pah. Neutrally, you end up doing what other people tell you to do, which is a bad thing for anybody in life. So, <laughs> in terms of in terms of the the Rupert Murdoch story, the, the 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 end result, News of the World was closed, another paper reopened in its place. Mm -hmm. James Murdoch was jettisoned off to New York. Rebecca Brooks will get a job any day now. Andy Coulson did go to prison, mm -hmm. but you were you you basically suggest in the end of the book that really nothing has changed. Do you believe that Rupert's power has not diminished at all? How has it played out in the British election, for example? Okay, so I, I think Rupert, certainly in the UK, I don't know about elsewhere, lost his shine. So he hasn't been able to uh, revive the, the summer party that they always had in London, which was this occasion for genuflection by the political class. Um, but the objective fact of his power is exactly the same. He still owns four national newspapers, far more than anybody else does. He still also runs Sky News. So he still has that same power. And just so that we're clear about what that is, <clears throat> it, it is centrally based on the tendency of those newspapers to expose people's sex lives. And that generates a real fear among people in what... I call the power elite. So I don't, and people in this room aren't frightened of Rupert Murdoch. But if you're a member of parliament in London and you've seen other MPs having their sex lives disclosed, it's so painful and so humiliating and so destructive that you, you, you make it your business to avoid getting into a fight with this guy. And so he's got power. And then there's also a kind of organizational attack that his newspapers will mount. So to come to the other part of your question, at the moment particularly The Sun, has, uh, has been working very hard to try to avoid 
a Labour government being elected in the election tomorrow, isn't it? And when his newspapers like that, because it's not just the Murdoch papers, but when newspapers like that target an organization, they can completely destabilize it so that it ceases to be able to perform its function. Because every day that news organization, that, sorry, that organization may start with some sort of agenda of what they hope to do, but there's some damn story on the front page which is causing chaos and they're having to fight the fire. If there's any kind of debate within the organization, that gets reported as a major split. Or, you know, every little problem is portrayed as a crisis. So, you, you see what I'm just trying to explain that the power is still there because of the newspapers and that, that aggressive way in which they behave. And so, what the Sun certainly and the Daily Mail, which is not a Murdoch paper but very right wing, have been engaged in it in our election campaign, is a political project to try to stop the electorate electing a Labour government. And it, it goes beyond ordinary journalism. I mean, just as an example, there was a front-page story in The Sun which reflected the fact that the Labour Party, Ed Miliband's party, like all political parties, takes in volunteers at election time to go and stuff leaflets through letterbox, but, and volunteers aren't paid. So the headline is Slave Labour. <laughs> and, so, and there's been the Daily Mail, actually, to be fair, more than The Sun, have been going back and trying to turn over Ed Miliband's sex life. And... I mean, they haven't come up with anything. He's rather a sort of mild-mannered character who's avoided swinging from trapezes in strange costumes or anything really very interesting. But what they do is they... You know, you know that he became leader of the Labour Party in an internal election in which his older brother David was the favourite to win. And he won the election fair and square. So what they say is that he stabbed his own brother in the back to get the job and has stabbed girlfriends in the back too because occasionally he said, actually, I don't want to be in the relationship anymore. But do you see what I mean? It's this kind of fevered blizzard of unfairness. But despite power. that... It could. It looks set to be a very close election, so maybe the power of the papers is dimi diminishing? Yes, actually the reality is that nobody's ever really been able to prove that newspapers actually do have the power to change the outcome of an election. But the thing is that from the politician's point of view, the fear that that might be what's happening is sufficiently great, that they behave as though the power is there. And so I think Ed Miliband, if he'd had any sense, would have made Rupert Murdoch and bad newspapers on Fleet Street, a really big issue in the election campaign to try, and, to try and push them back from the campaigns of distortion and falsehood and to try and alert the public to it. And I, I, but he hasn't done it, and I think that's about fear. Just to, to fill in that the last election we had in May 2010 when Gordon Brown was the sitting prime minister, he got so fed up with the Murdoch papers setting out to oust him from power uh, that he commissioned a speech from his officials, and the speech explicitly attacked Rupert Murdoch and his newspapers and their abuse of power. And having commissioned the speech, I've actually seen it in the official's possession, he never made it. Because it's one thing to be on the receiving end of kind of volley of, of insults, but what he didn't want to do was to start a thermonuclear war, so he backed down. I think Miliband's just done the same thing. I don't know very much about how things are here, whether it's the same whether politicians here back down and try to placate him because they're frightened of his newspaper. Well, the, the, our, our Prime Minister does make a, a kind of annual pilgrimage to visit Rupert Murdoch mm -hmm. uh, in New York every year. It's, it's, uh, that's, that's at least one sign of it. But, but again, I think sometimes the case is that the, maybe that the, 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 pa the power of the papers is diminishing. Much was made of 
the, vero- the ferocious campaign against uh, Labor in Western Sydney in the last election, but they didn't do too badly in the end. So, again, as you say, it's, it's up for debate, oh, yeah. but I think that fear is very real and present in this country as, as well. Uh-huh. I'm going to give some of our audience members a go at questions for you now. I've actually got two. I wonder if you might like to compare Rupert with Randolph Hearst and Conrad Black. Okay. And secondly, um, Rupert doesn't seem to have taken a back step in this country since all the British controversy. And last year on the ABC, a former senior executive of News Limited, um, a former a son-in-law of Gough Whitlam, gave glowing reports of him and how he was in the office. So I'm wondering if we could have some discussion of that too. How Rupert was in the office? He doesn't okay. seem to have taken a backward step here. Okay. He doesn't I, I, seem to have been outed. Okay, I'll, I'll be as quick as I can because I tend to ramble on. I know we're running out of time. Rupert Murdoch and Randolph Hearst are actually very different creatures. Randolph Hearst and his generation of newspaper owners are propagandists. They buy newspapers in order to interfere with them to put across a political point. I think it's a mistake to believe that Rupert Murdoch comes out of the same stable. Murdoch is primarily a commercial creature. He interferes with government whenever it suits him. He interferes with his newspaper's editorial line only very rarely. It's clear that he gives them a basic framework. So they all support kind of deregulated capitalism, low public spending, low tax. They're basically right of center. Beyond that, you'll find him interfering only very rarely when there's a particular crisis or some need that he has. Generally, he lets them go. So he, so he comes from a different place. Uh, I, as to how he's in the office, I don't really know, but I, I think it's fair to say he's bounced back. He has bounced back in, in every way. So, I mean, News Corp as a company is making more money than ever, primarily from its film and television division. He's hung on to the newspapers. You know, they've hived them off into a separate group, <clears throat> which is partly to protect the rest of the company from the enormous amount of money they were having to spend in London to deal with the phone hacking, compensation, lawyers, and all the rest of it. But it's also because as long as he holds on to the newspapers, he still does have that impact on government. So when he needs, it's primarily about getting a regulator out of the way. If we want to expand and somebody says, hang on, you're creating a monopoly, the, the political power usually will get the regulator out of the way so that he can, he can expand further. Is there another question? I can hear you. Yeah, go for it. All right. Oh, I see. You said... Rep- Becca Brooks is an intelligent woman. Yeah. She must also be powerful. I'm really surprised that she didn't go down, uh, that she's not in prison. Why do you think that happened? I mean, was it a... Well, okay, so I sat all through that trial, which went on for eight months. So I heard all the evidence. I was also sitting opposite the jury, who were amazingly attentive. And if I'd been sitting on the jury, I also would have said she's not guilty. Now, it's, it's a funny thing that I've done lots and lots of meetings like this in the UK. Somebody almost always says, why isn't Rebecca in jail? And I would say, without exception, it's a woman who asks the question. <laughs> so there is an underlying question about why women are so upset with, about her. What is it that angers women about Rebecca Brooks? Because just to finish, the, why isn't she inside? I, I, a, I'm not particularly interested in sending people to prison. I, it wasn't the object of the exercise. But I don't think you want to live in a society where people get sent to prison because everybody assumes they must have committed a crime. It's up to the state to prove it beyond reasonable doubt. And they couldn't. And so she shouldn't have gone to prison, is my line. That might surprise you a bit, but, I, but if, if they can't prove it, then nobody goes to prison. I think that's fair. 
That's the way the system works. And the evidence wasn't there. And we could all speculate about whether there might be some other evidence that was lost or destroyed or that wasn't found. But that's, that's a different thing. We, I'll I, I tell you one thing that might surprise you, and which is, is quite striking. In researching all this stuff, <clears throat> I often came across people who said, I know Andy Coulson was involved because he did this or said that. I played a voicemail message to him. I have never actually come across anybody who had direct evidence on Rebecca. So, I don't know. Was there something else? Oh, yes, why, why do, you, do you feel upset by her? What is it that gets at women about her? <laughs> there are clever women. <laughs> she is. <laughs> it's interesting. While I'm taking this mic up the back, tell us how the BBC behaved. I can hear you. Physical safety, not at all. Oh, that, the, the, the PI who, who, whose partner ended up with the axe in his face. I think he's, he's a bit alarming. No, if, if you're going up against the Murdochs, it isn't physical damage, it's reputational damage that you, you, you could suffer from. And with me, <clears throat> there have been occasions when I've been aware of Murdoch reporters sniffing around, asking questions about my personal life. So quite often over the years, I've run one-day masterclasses in techniques of reporting. And there was a reporter from the Murdoch camp trying to find out whether in those classes I had A, encouraged them to commit criminal offenses, or B, managed to get my leg over anybody. <clears throat> and I'd failed on both counts. It's a tough life. So, but where there were other people involved in uncovering this story, as the book describes, including the Labour MP Tom Watson, and these lawyers who were acting for the public figures who were suing over the hacking. Well, three of those had a private investigator put on their tail by Murdoch's people, um, secretly videoing them without question, trying to find them sleeping with somebody they shouldn't have been sleeping with so they could be punished and humiliated and beaten off. The private investigator who did that calls himself Silent Shadow. His real name is Derek, but he prefers <laughs> Silent Shadow. <clears throat> so if there's anybody called Derek here, I apologize. <laughs> something about that name. Any more? Nick, quickly, just how did the BBC behave? I mean, they're meant to be the independent public broadcaster. No, they were very nervous of him. So on the very first day when we did that very first story, the press office at The Guardian knew that other newspapers wouldn't report it, so they contacted the BBC and Channel 4, the independent news outlet. Both of them turned up. I briefed reporters. Channel 4 News immediately filmed an interview with me, which they put out. BBC didn't put out anything until after Channel 4 had reported it. I was on the phone to them saying, why aren't you reporting it? Well, they're a bit worried about whether or not... It's the fear thing. And that concludes the Wheeler Centre's two-part series with Nick Davies and Sophie Black in conversation for the Fifth Estate. If you'd like to explore other points of view on the media, head to wheelercentre.com for podcasts from people including Alain de Baton. Really, the task of popularisation is about the most important you can have in a democratic society where some of the most important issues need to get traction with wide varieties of people. Because if you've got an important story and you cannot popularise it, you're dead in the water. And a whole lot more. <laughs>